Good afternoon and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hari. And this marks the first episode of Season 6 where we're going to explore the classics. The word classic or the term classics is rather vague, uh, rather ambiguous when you alert someone. Oh, that film's a classic. Have you not seen that film? It's a classic. But you certainly know what they mean by that. Sometimes that term is thrown around a lot from a recent viewing causing excitement and sometimes subjective opinions. However... There are a handful of films that are universally known as classics. Classics are distinguished and are unique works of films that have exceeded time and trends throughout the history of moving pictures and remained reinforced in people's minds as a standout film. Characters of classics are usually hard to pinpoint as there is no real permanent answers to their characteristics in a movie. It is in fact invites no permanent answers whatsoever, invites challenges to see what sticks and what doesn't. But mostly, of course, the acting is usually flawless, direction, music, cinematography, and most importantly, the story that captivates hearts and remains a timeless piece of art, which makes it a relentless classic. And the 10 that I've chosen to speak about certainly fits that bill, understandably, under this category. So for today's episode... I shall talk about the 1960s Alfred Hitchcock thriller Psycho, adapted from a novel written by Robert Block and of course directed by the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, and starring Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, and Anthony Perkins. Well, how many things comes as shocking as this 1960s classic? 1960s, a time when horror was still finding its feet, the decade before the 1950s, Horror movies already radically changed from their predecessors, and understandably so, the world was fairly different. It was hard to grasp the changes that took place in the 1940s. Of course, half of it was stuck and caught up in the Second World War, which left over, what was it, 30, 40 million dead? And the world saw the full intensity and true colours of the inhumanity of what man is capable of to its fellow self. The real horror at that time was real life, not what we saw in cinema. Nothing in cinema could even trump the real-life horrors in the world. Homecoming soldiers and bereaved widows had lived through the worst of the worst, too numb from those experiences to even be rattled by fantasies or costumed monsters in Europe. That era of fantasy costume monsters came to an end, though. By the 1950s, audiences wanted stories that connected to them, connected directly to their lives, their ever-expanding technology in their homes and workplaces. They wanted films that played to their fears. The post-war posterity of the USA brought with it a new breed of monsters, a new layout to film, to bring it closer to home with horror movies adapted for survival in North America, like in swamps, deserts, small towns and suburban homes. I mean, the suburban homes had become a very famous setting for even established horror franchises like Scream, Halloween, pretty much any slasher movie you come across these days. The 50s started to get the ball rolling with the horror genre after the post-era had faded away and audiences were now ready to be scared again. And this time with the use of fantasy now instead of the hands of Adolf Hitler and thus began the era of monster movies once again. The 50s started introducing films like Them, War of the Worlds, The Blob, The Abdominal Snowman, Night of the Devon, uh, Demon, Dracula, and the horror genre had been revived. And if anything, it had restarted from where it left off before World War II. Now, audiences were being sugarcoated with these films, these monster flicks. You see, with the introduction of colour in the 50s, or actually late 40s, films went back to the old ways in terms of monster movies, but the colour was the sugarcoat to hide the repetitive horror movies that was spawning out again in the 50s. 
It wasn't until the start of the 60s did we start to see something quite serious, something less fantasy, something more horrific, something that hit home more than it should have because it wasn't being sugarcoated. It wasn't a man in a costume per se. It wasn't something we saw before. And even it wasn't even done in colour, even though colour was around. The film relied on story. It relied on pace. And it relied on the audience's investment in this twisted tale of mystery and suspense. And that's where Hitchcock peaked. And that is saying something considering the films he did before and after Psycho. Rear Window, The Birds, Vertigo, Rope, Rebecca, Strangers on a Train, all established Hitchcock as a man to deceive the audience, to use real-life elements to drive the horrors in his story, using humans as the real enemies, humans with flaws, with real-life flaws. I mean, one thing we always learned from Scooby-Doo is that the real monsters are human. So Hitchcock was coming off doing North by Northwest and Vertigo and wanted to do something quite different, something that would really cause a stir. He already got that kind of reputation from Rear Window or Rope, but he wanted to raise the bar higher, and no one had arguably done that yet. It was already established as the master of suspense. There was a lot riding on this film, the film that would actually change his life and the life of cinema forever. The film wouldn't have come about if Hitchcock didn't go to a certain store and pick up some random book, and that book happened to be his next idea. I think his wife was the one who suggested him this book, actually. It was Robert Bloch's Psycho. Hitchcock found the book disgusting, scary, awful, and just perfect for his next project. Studios would be mad. They wouldn't allow this film to see the light of day. I mean, Robert Bloch was actually quite good friends with um, Boris Karloff, who played Dracula in the 30s. I think he played Frankenstein as well. Um, so his ideas were quite twisted, but beautifully executed in the book. Um, and Hitchcock, uh, he purchased the rights to the book in a private uh, sort of deal and I think he actually ended up buying it for £9,000, which is an absolute bargain considering how well the film did. He would then buy as many copies as he could so no one would know what the ending was. He would get his assistants to just order as many copies as they could. That would be their full-time job for the next two months, ordering as many copies of Psycho as they could. Robert Bloch is now a name lost in history, especially when it comes to Psycho. Many associate Alfred Hitchcock and Anthony Perkins with this film, but it started with Robert Bloch. Bloch was an established writer. He was friends of horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. I don't think the two actually met, but he named a character after him, which is a legacy of his own. I watched The Colour of Space, um, The Colour Out of Space the other day. Um, must have been the seventh adaptation of it. It has uh, Nicolas Cage on in it. It's on Prime, and it was actually quite a good film. I think it's the best adaptation I've seen of The Colour Out of Space, so if you want to watch it, it's on Prime. But Block was around great writers and actors, that of Basil Rathbone, who played Sherlock, to the guy who first played Dracula, which is the most adapted fictional character in movie pictures in history. But never had formed an education after high school and is probably responsible for one of the greatest horror movies ever made. His first collection of short stories were published in a pulp magazine in 1934 called Weird Tales. A pulp magazine, if you don't know what that is, is a collection of stories or tales in a magazine. It's why it's called Pulp Fiction, a reference to these old magazines, of course, uh, the three different stories in Pulp Fiction instead of your usual one story in a movie, which is why it's called Pulp. Um, so Hitchcock purchased the rights. Block was, uh, Block was a blip in the radar now, and it was up to Hitchcock to make this movie. So Paramount eventually gave him the money to make this movie, but they did not give him much because of the material he was working with. They also stupidly deferred all of the box office takes straight to Hitchcock, thinking the film wouldn't make much money. 
when of course it became a silent killer, a colossal hit. Hitchcock made a fortune. It was a massive sacrifice to do for a director, especially one with the material that hadn't really been done before in cinema to this extent. So his usual salary for a director at that time was like $250,000. And he said, don't pay me the salary. I don't want the money. Just give me 60% of the money the movie makes. So he's basically working for free until the movie was released, which went on for like six, seven months. So he was not being paid at all. And the movie made $15 million on his own. Now, and just that for inflation, that's the equivalent of $150 million today. I think it's safe to say that it was worth the gamble, seeming he worked out a deal to get 60% of that. Now, there are a lot of things that the money is famous for. But first thing is first for me... Um, the film, uh, it's the music for me by Bernard Herrmann. The whole score by him is played entirely by string instruments. Nothing on drums, nothing on anything else. It's just string instruments. And it was striking. It was a very aggressive yet subtle piece of art. After the film, I think he ended up doubling his salary. Hitchcock claims 30% of the film's success is due to the musical score of the movie. The music, of course, starts right away in the movie, right up after the Paramount logo, and really sets up the movie throughout the opening sequence. Hitchcock was so protective about this, he said to enjoy Psycho to his full potential. So you need to be there from the very start, from the very beginning, right at the start of the credits. You can't roll up 10 minutes late or even halfway through the title sequence at the start. He would even tell ushers at the cinemas not to let anyone in once the credits had started, and he was very protective of that he would even be there not allow people in he would go to this nearest cinema and just be there and make sure people wouldn't get in afterwards he was very aggressive about that so the opening sequence people tend to make their coffees their teas check their phone but it uh but it is quite revealing it really sets the tone of a movie where you're about to watch and take nothing away from it it's just as relevant than the movie psycho being a classic example even more contemporary i say contemporary the film came out 25 years ago but seven as well offers a very revealing and detailed opening sequence that you don't want to miss Another interesting thing about the score of the movie was the very famous shower sequence was originally meant to be in silence, but Bernard Herrmann went ahead and did the score anyways, and after hearing the missing, soon-to-be iconic soundtrack, he soon changed his mind and added it in. So that means the story was not Hitchcock's. The music in the famous sequence ever in the movie, or maybe cinema history, was not Hitchcock's idea. But when piecing it together, I mean, you can't really take anything away from Alfred Hitchcock, can you? But the story and the most famous sequence involving the music was not his. So the main thing to talk about for this movie, and now part of popular culture, is the famous shower sequence. Now, after the movie was released, he got a letter from a father of a girl who had refused to shower after seeing this movie. And also said that he, she also refused to take a bath after one of his earlier films as well, which is a film he did five years ago. And he simply wrote back saying, send her to the dry cleaners. He did not care about how he made people feel. He wanted to give audiences something they hadn't seen before. He wanted to turn the tables. So Janet Lee, who plays Marion and was the woman in the shower sequence, apparently never took a shower after this movie ever again, just in awe about how vulnerable a woman is in the shower. Although I would argue you're just as vulnerable when taking a bath, but I don't know. So Janet Lee. She worked for three weeks on the movie, and one of those weeks was dedicated to the shower sequence in one of the most talked-about sequence in film history. One week to shoot that entire sequence. It was shot, if you care, and if you're a bit of a cinephile like me, it was shot on December 17th to December 23rd, a great lead-up to Christmas in 1959. Features 77 different camera angles and exactly 50 cuts, all in 45 seconds. 
Now, for me, it wasn't the shower sequence that was shocking. I mean, watching it for the first time in 1999 when I was 10, when you had already seen films like Scream and Halloween, it was quite low-key for me. But once you understood how the sequence was ahead of its time and shocking, you have to appreciate the balls on Hitchcock. Even the opening scene where we first see Sam Loomis and Marion in the hotel room. I mean, they're in their underwear, and the underwear isn't even revealing. Classic 50s-style underwear. And this was deemed almost pornographic and utterly distasteful since they were both weren't married. The opening scene itself offers many clues to the tone of the movie as well the horrific score followed by what was considered deeply sexual scene notice how she's wearing bright colors white more predominantly where she later steals the money she wears black so you get these little uh, clues as to her you know uh, inner feelings and her actions in the movie but yes anyway to me what shocked me when i first watched psyche it wasn't the shower sequence or this mundane scene in the hotel but the fact that Janet Lee, who is the star of the movie, the face on the poster, the big name of the movie, first Bill on Psycho gets killed 30 minutes into the film. The film's budget was extremely low. So they didn't have many big names in the film. The only big name they did have was Janet Lee, precisely for this reason. And Hitchcock knew exactly this, for that's why. So she could get killed off. It would be even more of a shock to have a big name get killed off 30 minutes into the movie. It's like killing Tom Cruise 20 minutes into Top Gun after seeing his face on the posters and trailers for eight months leading up to the film's release. It's that shocking. Of course, in the famous shower sequence when this happens, I was like, wait, what? So where does this movie go now? Who do we follow? Killing off your main star a third of the way through a movie was a bold move. And for me, that is why the shower sequence is shocking. Not for the week that it took to film it or the voyeurism aspect of that scene, but in terms of the story, the main character is now dead. And when I saw that, I was absolutely taken back. I was so ignorant when I first saw this movie. I was like, oh, 1960s black and white movie. All right, give me your best shot. And since then, I've never turned a blind eye to a supposed classic made back then. And you have to put your hands together for these kind of films that were taking those leaps forward and trying something new even though it could fail. Many of those directors in that period had to make those jumps to be where we are now. And if it wasn't for the Hitchcocks or the Kurosawas or Kubricks, we wouldn't have the same pedigree of filmmaking that we do now. Now, as the famous quote goes, or most comes, most, most things come in free... And the shock element to this movie certainly did that. So we got the double whammy shock sequence where A, the main star dies 30 minutes into the film, and B, the notorious shower sequence. So now we delve deeper into the story of Norman Bates, this attractive, timid man who seems innocent, but also at the same time holds a very dark secret and a unique relationship with his mother. Of course, the best quote in these films comes from the wonderful Anthony Perkins, who plays the role of Norman Bates to perfection, where all is revealed at the Bates Motel at the end of the movie. A man's best friend is his mother, or more, 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 just more notoriously, we all go mad a little sometimes. In the novel by Robert Block, however, Norman Bates is actually a fat and quite unattractive man. It was actually Hitchcock's idea, his take on uh, Psycho, to have him as sympathetic, thin, young, good-looking, to attract the audience's on this false sense of security with him. Now, from what we know, the mother killed Marion, or so we're led to believe. Now, when watching this film for the first time, I had no idea what to expect. And before we found out that Norman's mother has been dead for 25 years, but yet we see Norman talk to her, we hear her voice, we see her in the movie, um, we see her kill someone in the shower. So we're a bit scratching our heads with this. How is she alive? What have we seen? So we have to scratch our heads at this. 
Of course, the big reveal, spoiler alert, is that Norman is his mother. He believes that he is the mother. Now, the MPAA objected to the use of the term transvestite to describe Norman Bates in the final wrap-up. They insisted the term be removed until this guy, Joseph Stefano, proved to them it was a clinical psychological term. They thought he was trying to get one over on them and just place a term like that in the picture for kicks. In the film, it's revealed he's not a transvestite because he generally believes he is the mother. He's not just dressing up. The final shot, if you remember, is just of him in prison. And then you have the car pulling out Marion's body, which is in the boot. Or I think she's chopped up. I can't remember. But um, it involves a superimposition of three elements that many people fail to notice. So the last shot of Norman Bates' face has a still frame of a human skull superimposed on it almost like really subtly, and that skull is that of her mother's, which we see right at the end when she turns the chair around, that famous, very referenced scene. This then dissolves into this sort of chain pulling the car with Marion's body out of the swamp. Now, they've positioned the chain so it's going through Norman or the mother's heart, symbolically showing that the two are tied together. Now, after this movie was released... Uh, Norman Bates, you know, everyone associated uh, Norman Bates with a Hitchcock movie. I mean, Norman Bates was the big character. Everyone knew who he was. Kind of like how everyone knows who, uh, I don't know, John McClane is or Hans Gruber or, you know, Ethan Hunt, I guess. He came, it was a very famous fictional name. Now, ironically, Hitchcock said he would never work with Janet Lee again because he couldn't envision, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't star in anything else after Psycho. It was just made too, it was so famous. You could only see her in that shower sequence. To work with her again would just be redundant for him because he couldn't sort of get her, you know, he just couldn't get her out of his head. Of course, her daughter would go on to be, you know, the scream queen in Halloween. Um, her daughter, by the way, is Jamie Lee Curtis, which is a nice reference uh, in the original Halloween movie where the doctor is called Samuel Loomis, who is the name of the mother's lover in Psycho. But this movie marked the fifth and final time that Sir Alfred Hitchcock earned an Oscar nomination for Best Director, though he never won. It was his highest grossing movie of his entire career. The 45-second shower sequence is arguably and understandably the most famous scene in cinema history. Forget the movie for being violent or sexually revealing, implying sexual tendencies, sexual motivations, even incestualized hints between mother and son. That scene will exist throughout time as the key to this movie's success. Not only for violence as it did or how it broke barriers by the way it was shot, not to mention Bernard Herrmann's powerful score, but the fact that the main character at that sequence was killed off. Psycho really tested the censorship restrictions and showed audiences that the real killer is within, that mental health is something that does exist, and with mental instability comes a horrific killer. Now classed as DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, most people commonly known this as split personality. But with that, Norman Bates probably does go down as one of the most notorious villains in cinema history. Well, listen, I could talk about Psycho for another 10 minutes, but I must end it there. But thank you for listening to Psycho, one of the classics. I think we can agree for many reasons, from the famous shower scene sequence to the first movie to show a toilet flush to uh, the big reveal at the end of the movie. I mean, this movie will and is testing the test of time in a movie that came out 61 years ago and is still considered one of the best horrors or thrillers in the world at the moment. Anyways, I'm on Spotify, Google, and iTunes, so please subscribe to me. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, all lowercase or one word, with daily news on entertainment and upcoming podcasts. And thank you again for listening to episode 51 with Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. <laughs> <laughs>